If you are packing God's Word today, would you turn it to Acts chapter 17? If you don't have one with you, there's uh, Bibles in the, in the racks around you. And um, if, if you don't have one very near your reach, you'll see the passages up on the screen as well, so you can follow along that way. I, I expect God's going to ask somebody here to do something today, and, and maybe groups of us, I don't know, in response to what you hear from God's Word. Um, we're going to be talking about what does it take to be courageous in the midst of really difficult times? What, what does that look like? And um, not wanting you to feel like if you've been gone this summer, if you're new to New Hope, that you just walked into the middle of the movie. I, I want to help you catch up where we're at. Um, we've been working through the book of Acts, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts at all, you know it's about the early church, um, but it's especially about the explosive growth of the early church. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of these incredible odds that Paul came up against as he's going from city to city to city to explain who Jesus is. And every time he arrives in a new town, he meets people who want to understand Jesus, but he meets incredible opposition. It's open hostility towards him is off the charts. Now, some of it you would expect, because when you go back to Acts chapter 9, you see that when he met Jesus for the first time, Jesus said to him, Paul, uh, you're going to proclaim my name before the Gentiles and before their rulers, so you expect that. And then he said, you're going to suffer for my name as well. Paul, I don't think, had any understanding of the amount of suffering that he was going to go through and what he was going to face. We, we saw just a few weeks ago, it goes into Lystra, and he's stoned, literally pelted with rocks to the point where it appears that he's dead. Last week, we saw him locked in stocks in a dungeon. And it was not a pretty picture. I don't know what the pictures are that you have in your head of stocks, but he's laying on his back after he's been beat. His flesh is ripped open, and his legs are spread wide, and he spends time laying on those open wounds. But yet he's singing and praising Jesus in the midst of it. In spite of everything, he has no hesitation to go into the next city. How do you keep going in situations like that? When it's really, really difficult, how do you keep going forward? You have to start with a premise, which I believe Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, the four guys we've been studying about most recently, I think they really understood. I've got an anchor verse for you this morning. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's, it starts with just this excerpt. I want you to see it. It says this, he made him, that means God the Father, caused God the Son, he, God the Father, caused God the Son to become sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Now think this through. God the Father caused the holy Lamb of God, pure, who knew no sin, to become lying on my behalf, to become adultery to become cheating, embezzlement, anger, all that this world contains, all the blackness, all the darkness came upon the Holy Lamb of God. Paul understood that. Silas understood that. It drove them to keep going forward because you could insert your name in the word our God the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin on Mark Kring's behalf. It, it, it should cause you to just recoil. It, it becomes 
almost an incomprehensible thought. With that thought in mind and how we're going to address courage this morning, would you pray with me before we step into the very first verse in chapter 17? Let's pray together. Father, we've just openly declared and willingly sang, even though it was set to music and it became so easy to say, we said, we stand with arms high and abandoned and willingly surrendered to you, asking you, what can we do? What can we say? So we approach chapter 17 this morning with an understanding that you want to speak to us and you've promised that your Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide. So we surrender to that thought right now that we're going to be taught by you. We would ask that you would show us how to respond. What do you want us to do? We'll ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 17 says this, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, glad I don't have to say those words twice, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So we've understood that when Paul rolls into town, something's going to happen, right? It's going to get intense. Paul comes into your city. He shakes up everything. He spends time there. It causes almost riots, as you're going to see this morning. What's going on with Paul? Well, he's just left Philippi. We finished chapter 16 last week. The very last verse of chapter 16 shows him leaving the dungeon. He's being chased out of town after he visited people in the house church. So he's leaving Philippi. He's in intense pain because he's been beat. And Silas is the same way. And they've got a 100-mile journey in front of them. I can't imagine them walking 100 miles considering the beating they just took. So I'm thinking they're probably on horseback. We don't know that for sure. But they made this journey in three days. They, they stop in those two cities that are mentioned. That's all just kind of speculation. But that's not as significant as this next thought. Why the passion to get to Thessalonica? Why this intensity? Well, part of it is because it's the capital city of what we think of as modern-day Greece. They called it Macedonia in their time. Now, Greece at that period of time in the Roman Empire was just a substantial possession of the Roman Empire. Very, very successful financially. So Paul's on his way to Thessalonica because it's got this population of 200,000 people plus. It's like New York City today in the sense that many, many cultures exist there. People are attracted to Thessalonica. They want to be there. Capital city of Macedonia, very financially prosperous it's, it's got lots of government control there. So diverse cultures, and especially there's a Jewish population, that's very attractive to Paul. So he sees this as the strategic center for the spread of the gospel throughout this entire region. And he's got this burning desire to reach his fellow Jews. So once he comes into town, he follows this pattern. He starts with a synagogue. And when he goes into the synagogue, he's always pointing people to Jesus if you just let your eyes drift down to verse 2, you see that's what Luke is describing there. He's exactly saying he's sitting down and reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Now, if you study his pattern, you might be tempted, especially in the first century, if somebody's talking to him, they might be tempted to say to him, Paul, you got really poor technique. I mean, you keep walking into these hostile environments, and you're telling your target audience that they're an offense to God? 
that they're sinners who need a savior and you wonder why they keep chasing you out of town? I mean, Paul, come on. Can you hear people in our culture today saying that? It would sound something like this. Paul, we're going to pay to send you into a sensitivity training class because you just, you know, you're really ticking people off. You just, you offend them. So you need some degree of sensitivity training. Have you noticed that in our culture, it has become so important not to offend people that it's become the new unforgivable sin? It, as last time I looked at God's word, the only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. That's God's word. You reject Jesus, God says that's unforgivable. Matter of fact, let me help you with that thought. Because God says he can't forgive the rejection of Jesus. If you grew up in church, I'm just going to say a, a word and something's going to pop in your mind. And, and for those who didn't grow up in church, you'll get to see the verse on the screen in just a minute. I'm going to give you a street address and I know what's going to happen. John 3.16. Okay, it's there, right? Instantly. So for those who didn't grow up in church, just watch this verse on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know what that verse means? It means there are those who are going to perish. Because whoever believes in him will not perish. They're going to have eternal life. They're not rejecting Jesus. But the opposite side of that is God saying, there are those who will reject him. See, that becomes the only condition by which someone cannot be forgiven. The rejection of Jesus is the unforgivable sin. It it absolutely offends me, if you want to use the word offend. I'm offended that more people who are Christians aren't concerned with a culture who's rejecting Jesus as Lord and they're destined for hell. There's an offense. There's something to be offended by. I'm sure I'm going to get letters over that, but I just got to put it out there. That's the truth. Did you know that God is offended? God says he is offended by the rejection of Jesus. Matter of fact, in the Psalms it was written that God has indignation 24-7 when people reject him because he's righteous. Look, look with me on the screen, Psalm 711. All of Psalm 7 is about this. It says, the God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Now, on that happy note, let's go to verse 2, okay? Verse 2. So this is Paul's thinking, right? This is his understanding going to verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, in the New Testament, you hold a copy of God's Word in your hands this morning. Perhaps it's right there in front of you. In the New Testament, in, in the second half of the Bible... All the discussions of your and my standing before God is always, always, always around the person of Jesus. Who we are before God is filtered through the lens of Jesus. It's its interlocking elements. Who Jesus is, why Jesus had to come, why he had to die, why he had to rise again, and how that provides forgiveness of sin. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's focusing all of his energies on revealing Jesus. 
Uh, let me just take a time out for a second for a shameless plug. Inside your bulletins when you came in this morning was a little card, and it's called Revealing Jesus on it. The reason we've inserted that in there this week is because in two weeks, we're going to take a break from the book of Acts, and we're going to study for four weeks how to understand Jesus. The Revealing Jesus is exactly what Paul's doing here. So if you've got people in your life who are trying to make sense of who Jesus is, maybe a coworker, maybe a neighbor, maybe you got a family member, think about that, take that card with you, and think in terms of how can I bring these people to understand who Jesus is. Well, we're going to spend time on that for four weeks, and I promise you they're going to come away with a much richer understanding. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's revealing Jesus to these people, and according to verse 2, he's done it for three Sabbaths. That means three weeks. Paul's working with these individuals. Would you not have loved to have been part of that conversation? I'd love to sit in on that for a span of three weeks. And here's what you should notice. He's not approaching this from his knowledge of culture. He's not approaching this from his knowledge of popular opinion. It says right there, he's doing it from the scriptures. Here's why that's so significant. Because culture is full of opinion of how to get to God. In the first century, it was no different. In the first century, the popular thinking in culture was they knew there would be a Messiah. They knew that there would be a promise because Scripture is full of it, that there would be a rival of one. But the expectation was that when Messiah arrives, that that would be one who would be coming as a political ruler, as a military hero. And when he was victorious, he would put all of the financial affairs in order and restore everyone's financial fortunes. So they're looking for a conquering hero. That's the mindset. And Paul comes to say, Messiah came, but he died at the hands of his own people. Getting that through the head of culture at that period of time is just as hard as it is today. It's absolutely beyond comprehension. You're telling us we're sinners who need a Savior, and that Savior came and he died? It's just beyond the thinking of people in the first century. Caused people to recoil, even caused the disciples to recoil. Three years, they're trying to make sense of who Jesus is while they're walking with Jesus. It was really hard for them to get it through their head. They couldn't accept the fact that he had to die until he actually died and was resurrected. And then, bam, made absolute sense to them. So Scripture talks constantly about the difficulty people have of accepting who Jesus is. It says to the Jews, it's a stumbling block because they couldn't see a dead Messiah. But to the Gentiles, Scripture says, it's foolishness. If you're wondering if you're Gentile this morning, if you weren't born Jewish, you're Gentile, okay? It's not a derogatory term. It just means that you're not born Jewish. So Jews and Gentiles. Scripture says the Gentiles think this is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14, you see this on the screen. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So we've worked through verse 1 and verse 2, and we come to verse 3, and we see in verse 3 that Paul's giving them evidence. He's explaining to them that Jesus had to suffer, that Jesus had to die. Do you notice the two things going on? There's explaining and there's proving. Why? Because for some people, it's enough just to hear that Jesus is the Christ, and they're willing to sign on the dotted line and say, I'm good with that. He's my Savior. He's forgiven me of my sins. But for other people, it takes reasoning It takes the explanation. They need to understand. So you find Paul, it says he reasoned with them. That's the English word for dialogued. 
meaning he's doing Q&A. Paul is fielding questions in the synagogue. He's not street preacher mode. He's sitting down with them and taking questions, and effectively, he's able to answer the questions. This really echoes 1 Peter 3.15, which speaks to every person here who is a believer in Jesus this morning. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet, big part, with, with gentleness and reverence, not cramming it down their throats. See, your Bible that you hold this morning provides the evidence. It provides the truth for the defense that you need to make. So Paul's doing that very thing. He's explaining and he's giving evidence. Here's what he's doing. He is very, very careful to declare the resurrection of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Because if you take those legs out from underneath a stool, you got nothing. John Stott, I'll let you see his quote. He's a much more modern theologian. He said it this way, Christianity is in, very, in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. That's why Paul wrote, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. But he did rise, right, church? So he's resurrected. We've got a reason to tell people. So Paul's conclusion comes out of verse 3. This Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Christ. And and they're looking at it. They're sifting through it, and they're trying to understand it. How do they respond? Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So Paul's exposition has been so compelling They're absolutely persuaded. The word that's used here is the only Greek word you find in your notes this morning, and you'll see it up on the screen. It's where you're at this morning if you're a believer in Jesus. It's this Greek word that means you're so convinced that in your core, nothing can change it. You agree to the degree that you believed so that you have confidence. That's what you see going on here. So Jews believe, and a large number of the Greeks, it says the God-fearing Greeks. So what's going on there? So you've got Jews coming into the synagogue, they're worshiping the God that they know, and then in Thessalonica, this big capital city, metro area, among the 200,000, there's Greeks who believe that there is one God, and they're trying to figure out, how do I get to know him? So they're showing up and they're attending synagogue, worshiping right alongside the Jews. So you've got people who have religion, but they have no relationship they got religion, but they don't have a relationship with God. And those people are showing up. And now, because Paul's been explaining for three weeks, they come to an understanding who Jesus is and that through his living presence, we can encounter God and we can have forgiveness. See, they've arrived at this understanding that through Jesus, because of him, because God made him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. You've arrived at that conclusion if you're a believer in Jesus this morning. God caused the Lamb of God to become sin on my behalf. And so these people, these Greeks, these Jews, they understand it, and they find out he's the only path to God. Let's look at the response from people who are watching. Verse 5, it says this, But the Jews, meaning the leadership of the synagogue, the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. 
And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. If you're familiar with the book of Acts at all, would would you say it's safe to say that Paul and Silas are having success? Yeah, they are. City after city, they're having success. And, And when you have success in talking about Jesus, it causes other people to recoil. So if you're courageous enough to proclaim the message, you're going to face conflict. Jesus said you can depend upon it. Success in kingdom work results in opposition. So these unbelieving Jews in this case are enraged by the success. What explains that? How do you account for that? Well, first of all, we're going to say that Jesus ticks people off, right? Just by saying his name. It causes some people to recoil. You can't talk about that. You can use his name as a swear word, Jesus Christ. I mean, like, but try using it as praise in public. That's a whole different realm, and that's what Paul's doing here. You do that, you're going to face conflict. So they're ticked off. Jesus said, John 3, 19, there's a reason for that. Remember John 3, 16, we'll just couple verses more, he says, but there'll be people who will refuse because they love the darkness instead of the light. They, they would prefer to be there. So verse 5, we see we've got jealous people who, along with some wicked men, I don't know, where do you find wicked men at? Are they hanging around outside the bars? Where do they go? Apparently, these guys at the synagogue are too good a church people to be bad guys themselves, so they go and hire some thugs, all right? And, and these guys show up. I don't know where they're finding them from, but they begin inciting a riot. Why are they so jealous? Well, let's just think this through. Paul's going to the synagogue, and he's teaching people about who Jesus is. And in the synagogue, in this major metropolitan city, multiple hundreds of thousands of people, they choose to go to the one and only synagogue. That means the Gentiles that are coming there are giving credibility to the Jews in this Greek world. And even the women of nobility, meaning the wives of the movers and shakers in the city, are showing up there. And Paul is teaching them about Jesus and leading them away. So there's jealousy on a human level just because they're losing the people of credibility and probably the money that goes with it. So they stir up a riot. Now, the plan is this. Let's bring Paul and Silas before the politarchs. It's just a Greek word for the politicians. Let's bring them before them. We're going to charge them with disturbing the Pax Romana. Think back to high school history class. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. We're going to charge them with disturbing that. So they go to the house of Jason, verse 5. Nothing's known about Jason other than the mention here. It's just a brother in Christ. We assume that Paul and Silas have been staying there, but they can't find them there. The mob's not satisfied, so they drag Jason before the court. And the first charge that they bring against them is really vague. These guys are upsetting the world. Okay? Let's amp it up a little bit. Jason's welcomed them. Well, they're charging Jason with harboring criminals. But the next charge, that's the really serious one. 
the charge that they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. This is much more serious. It's a dangerous charge because they've just charged them with treason. They're speaking against Caesar. And to speak of another kingdom other than the kingdom of Caesar, in Rome, you had to take an oath of loyalty. If you were in Caesar's presence, you had to actually bow in his presence and kiss his hand and swear your allegiance to Caesar. In this case, every Roman citizen was expected to fulfill an oath of allegiance to Caesar. So now they're charging them with this incredible accusation of treason. This is the most serious crime in the empire. So what they're doing is they're going for the jugular. They want these guys dead. This is the same charge that was brought against Jesus. It's the same charge that's going to get Paul beheaded in a few chapters. So they bring this charge against these guys, and then verse 8 and 9 happens. Verse 8, they stirred up the crowd in the city, and the city authorities who heard these things, verse 9, stands in contrast to it. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Now, what's going on? Well, the politicians don't want riots in their town, but they find the evidence is incredibly lacking. They've got no way to prosecute these guys, so they're posting bail. That's what the pledge is. Jason, you're going to post bail. We want you to assure us that there will be no repetition of the trouble. So you're going to put money up to guarantee that that's not going to happen. This precipitates Paul leaving town. He's got to get out of one more town because he's got to commit to not being there in order for the bail to stand. But that doesn't stop Paul from writing, does it? doesn't stop Paul from writing the book of First and Second Thessalonians. So three months later, after he leaves this town, he sits down and writes the very letter you have in your hands this morning, First and Second Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament because he can't go back to them. It's been legislation has been passed, and he's unable to disciple these people that he wants to disciple. So let me show you an example of that, First Thessalonians 2.17. He says, but we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. See, he knows who's behind this, right? He totally understands this is Satan activity here. But there's been legislation. Bond's been posted. There's no return. His hands are completely tied. He can't go back. So in verse 10, we saw the response. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews See, bail would be forfeited if Paul and Silas are found in Jason's home, so they step off the Ignatian Way. Think back to high school history again. Ignatian Way could pop in your mind. You could start thinking of Highway 80 that runs between New York City and Chicago, major superhighway in our nation. Lots of commerce travels on that highway. The Ignatian Way is the same way. When, when Paul first stepped into Greece back in chapter 16, he jumps on the Ignatian Way. And Ignatian Way goes all the way to Rome. It's a superhighway. But for whatever reason, Paul jumps off the superhighway, and he heads southwest to Berea. Goes 50 more miles at night. Verse 10 says, they arrived, they went into the synagogue. Big surprise, right, church? Paul in a synagogue? Who knew? He goes into the synagogue, and the guy gets A++++ for courage, right? From one right after the other, and he does exactly what you would expect Paul to do because... He's got courage in his walk with Christ. Do you lack courage in the midst of your difficult circumstances? 
Courage is not an absence of fear, okay? Just to be real clear on that. Courage is not an absence of fear. It's recognizing the fear and moving forward anyways. So we see a lack of courage in many Christians today to talk about Jesus or to face really hard times and become almost paralyzed by the difficulties that they're surrounded by. Where does that stem from? A lack of courage, my experience, a lack of courage stems from a poor understanding of the nature and the character of our God. A lack of courage stems from a poor understanding of the nature and the character of our God. I'm going I'm to back that up for you. In your notes, I put two simple points that you can remember when you think of being courageous. Maybe you would like to be more courageous in the things that you do. Just very quickly, I want to touch on these, and I want to back them up with Scripture to help you understand them. First of all, courage results from confessing sin. Now, that may catch you by surprise. But it's really, really hard to be courageous if you feel burdened down by the sin that's in your life. So if you're not confessing sin and you're carrying it along with you, it causes you to not even want to talk to other people about Jesus. I'll give you a biblical example from King David's life, just one of many examples, in which he recognized there's a potential that he could have holes in his armor from the sin in his life. But he recognized who his shield really is. So let me bring up for you, and you'll see it up on the screen, Psalm chapter 7, verse 1. He says this, O Lord, my God, in thee I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. His life is being hunted, right? He's in a fearful situation. But look at his next statement from verse 10. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Now, David is not declaring that there's no sin in his life. He's saying there's no unconfessed sin. There's a big difference, isn't there, church? Because we all have sin. David is declaring there's no unconfessed sin. My my heart is right before God. And on that basis, he's asking God to deliver him because he knows going into battle with holes in his armor is a big mistake. What what does the New Testament call the the breastplate that Christians wear? It's just an analogy for Christians. But Scripture says the breastplate of righteousness. How do you put on the breastplate of righteousness? It's through God. He's the one who arms us. He's the one who equips us. So that breastplate better not be full of holes because of the sin in your life. You've got to confess it and and deal with it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is courage comes very simply. It's not a simple thing to do, but a simple statement. Trusting the sovereign care of God. Here's why I say it's a simple statement, but not a simple thing to do. It comes from trusting the sovereign care of God because that God who said, I love you so much that I sent my one and only son for you. And if you believe in him, you will not perish. See, if you understand that character and that nature of God who means the best for you no matter the circumstances, you can go any place and do anything. God's got your back every time. Paul understands that. That's where the courage comes from. Absolute trust no matter the circumstances because God loves me that much that he sent his one and only son for me. 
I'm going to ask you to do something very simple. Just close your eyes, and I'm going to read to you a passage from King David. Closing your eyes will just help you shut out the distractions. Hear this from David in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. How does David say that? Because he knows in whom he's believed, church. He knows the nature and the character of God. Confesses his sin, deals with his sin, and trusts God no matter the circumstances. Let's jump back in and finish the last couple verses here. Verse 11 says, these Bereans were unique people. Verse 11 says, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. These guys get this title title of undying fame here because they're called more noble than the Thessalonians. To this very day, home Bible study groups call themselves the Bereans because they like to be recognized as people who are noble enough to look into the scriptures. Why are these guys so set apart? Because of this. They're testing the truth of what Paul's saying by looking at the Bible. Is it accurate? Is what he's saying actually true rather than judging it by culture? Well, that's not what my aunt said, Paul. That's not what my grandfather told me. That's not what my school teacher said. See, they're not testing it by culture. They're testing it by the truth of God's word. See, these are intellectual people. And they're open to searching for truth. And what we see in verse 11, they're eagerly searching. Matter of fact, the word that's used there, examining, it's a Greek word, anakarino. And it actually is used in a judicial setting where people go into the courtroom. Individuals who have done all their research, they've laid their case well, and they walk into it confidently. So these guys have done that. They've examined, eagerly searching the scriptures, and they said, does it really point to the death and the resurrection of the Messiah? And they come to the conclusion, absolutely. This is no brief investigation. They've sifted through all the material, all the scrolls that they have available, and they come to the conclusion, it's true. See, those who honestly examine the Bible, big statement, those who honestly examine the Bible will come to the same conclusion. I'm going to back it up with an example for you. There's a book that we give out here at the church. Um, It's written by Lee Strobel. Some of you have read it. Um, We give it out to individuals who are really searching, trying to understand Jesus. It's called The Case for Christ. We've given out, (laughs) lost count of how many of these that are given out. But here's the background. Lee is um, a, a graduate of Yale Law School. And as a graduate of the law school, after his legal practice, he was hired by the Chicago Sun-Times. And the Chicago Sun-Times hired him to be their legal editor. So he's an atheist. And as an atheist, he married an atheist. And life's good. He's got a big income. He's living in a great neighborhood. He likes things the way they are. And then somebody goes and introduces his wife to Jesus Christ. And that really ticked him off. Okay? Okay. So you got an atheist who's married to a Christian, and life's not so good. 
So this legal editor of the Chicago Sun-Times decides to take his law degree and do some research and prove that Jesus is not the Christ, and you know what he uses to do it? He goes to the Bible. Now, you already know where the story's going, right? Because you can't study the Bible and not come to the same conclusion. So Lee begins studying the Bible, and he comes to the conclusion, oh, man, I am totally screwed. <laughs> and he writes about this in his book. It, it just hit him like a freight truck. This is real. This is legit. And so he writes the book, The Case for Christ, instead of The Case Against Christ. If you'd like a copy of that, let us know later. Maybe you've got a friend that's struggling. We'll try and help set you up with one of those books. So we, we come to this conclusion that those who honestly examine the Bible ultimately are going to come to the same conclusion, just like Lee did. Well, that's what happened with these individuals in Berea who were intellectuals studying the Bible. Verse 12, therefore, many of them believed along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. My personal experience, I don't know, maybe it's different for you, but most people who reject Jesus have really very, very little knowledge of the Bible. And I'm not saying they're stupid. That's, that's not what I'm implying. I'm just saying they're uninformed. They haven't spent time examining it. Just being here this morning puts you light years ahead of the average American citizen. Average American doesn't even bother to open God's word once a year. And yet they call themselves Christians, that we live in a Christian nation. If they just read it, they come to the very same conclusion. Jesus used the Bible to prove himself. He didn't have the New Testament because he's living in the New Testament, right? So he uses the Old Testament to prove that he was who he said he was. Look with me on the screen. Luke 24, 27, speaking of Jesus, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Praise God, because of the gift of God, you and I have the Old Testament and the New Testament this morning. We get to examine them both to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. If you're a Christian this morning and, and you're struggling with how to use God's Word more effectively, I put it in your notes this morning, just a couple points, and it, the question is asked, how can a Christian know God's Word well enough to use it effectively? You can just read through that yourself and process what it, it says. So verse 12 says, many of them believed. Many of them who heard Paul believed. Now, he's got the ideal situation going on. He's arrived in Berea. It's off the beaten path. It's not in the Ignatian way. Nobody knows he's there. And he's got people who are serious students, and they want to be discipled. So he's explaining Jesus. He's got the ideal situation, but a bunch of gangsters show up again. Go with me to the last couple of verses, verse 13. But when the Jews of, the Thess of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. That was the last verse for this morning. Don't reach for your car keys yet, though. The Thessalonian Jews have sent a posse, and they're hunting for Paul, and they stir up the opposition, and they're really good at it. And they're so successful. Apparently, there's this huge uproar, even in Berea. Evidently, the Gentile population is going to respond just like those at Thessalonica. Can you imagine having nothing better to do with your time than just travel around from city to city and start riots? Now, what is up with that? These guys need a job. 
I won't even go into it. We've got the Berean Christians now who recognize Paul's not safe. He's not safe any place he goes because he's being courageous for Jesus. Satan has Paul's picture on the windshield of his car, and he wants to run him over. No matter what region he goes into, the guy's not safe. So Paul's forced to leave another town again. So just to help you understand what's going on in those verses, we're going to leave Paul in Athens for this week. They take him to a coastal city, and they they use a diversionary technique. And it looks like they're going to put him on a ship to go out to sea to another country. But instead, by night, they, they turn and they take him down to Athens. And that sets up one of the coolest stories ever in the Bible. When Paul goes into the Oropagus in Athens, oh, man, that's next week. But we'll save that. They've escorted Paul down to Athens. He's been chased out of one more town because he dares to declare that there's only one way to deal with the sin in your life, that there's only one. And it's echoed in our anchor verse this morning from 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be cheating, to be lying, to be adultery, to be embezzlement, to be anger, wrath, any of the dark images that fill your mind. God made Christ Jesus to be sin on our behalf. Do you have sin that you're struggling with this morning? Whether you're a believer or not a believer. Do you have sin that you're really wrestling with? Here's what Satan says to you. That thing you did, God's not going to forgive that. It's so heinous. 1 John 1, 9, if you're faithful to confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just the little ones, all of them. So it's Satan, if you're hearing that voice, saying, no, God won't forgive you of that. That's too bad. Just, just, you've crossed the line this time. If you're struggling with sin, you need to recognize the God who sent his one and only son who loves you that much is willing to forgive you. Paul is chased out of town for announcing that there's only one king capable that there's only one king worthy, and his name is King Jesus. That's why Paul is chased out of town. These individuals are so courageous because they understand God's got their back. Even if the circumstances go bad, God's still got their back. And they understand the full context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to end this morning with it for all of us. Look at the full statement. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him.
This is the complete story. That's why he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that you and I could be made the righteousness of God. How cool is that? It just boggles my mind. I'm going to pray right now that you would be courageous in whatever you're facing this week because God has your back. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray for those who name the name of Jesus this morning, who have experienced forgiveness and new life, that you will remind us of who we are. We are the redeemed of the Lord. And because we are the redeemed, we, we recognize, Father, that in moments like this when we're sitting in settings where we heard your word, it's so much easier to say, I am going to be courageous the next time. And then the next time comes and it causes us to shrink back. Father, I pray that in those moments you would remind us of who we are in you, that we're not who the world says we are. We're not who Satan says we are. We are who you say we are. And you say you love us. And you sent your son for us, and you have forgiven us if we believe in him. So, Father, I pray for this auditorium full of people who will face a world that is hostile to the name of Jesus. And I pray for courage in the midst of that. Pray for courage in the midst of unemployment. Pray for courage in the midst of sickness and broken relationships. Father, that we would remember that you're over all circumstances. It's in the name of our King that we pray, in the name of King Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Okay, we say amen because it's true, right? Okay, have a great week.